Hello, and welcome to the Heart Failure Beat, a podcast brought to you by the Heart Failure Society of America, created especially for those of you treating heart failure in institutions around the world. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I'm Dr. Kevin Shaw, University of Utah, uh, with a special co-host today. Hi, everybody. My name is Nosheen Risa. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, heart failure transplant cardiologist, and delighted to join Dr. Shah here for our Heart Failure Beat podcast today. And, you know, today we have really a fantastic opportunity. So we're recording at the HFSA meeting in Denver on Sunday morning, and it's gone wonderfully so far. And we were lucky enough to snatch up a little bit of time from our two Lifetime Achievement Award winners uh, Dr. Lynn Warner Stevenson and Dr. Inder Anand. So, first of all, congratulations to you both. Thank you, and uh, thank you for taking the time to uh, chat with us a little bit. I think our uh, our listeners would love to learn a little bit more about your history, really, with the society in terms of the HFSA and kind of a historical perspective. Because for a lot of us, particularly early career folks, this society is something that's meant a lot to us as we've kind of started our journeys. And I'd love to hear from your perspectives what HFSA looked like early on, and how you've seen it change. Well, one of the things you need to realize is that there was no field of heart failure for either of us when we started. Um, so it was kind of a lonely world at that time. We didn't know quite how to define ourselves. Um, and uh, my, my chief, when I started this, said, well, why would you want to study heart failure? Because heart transplant's going to make it obsolete. And a group of us at that time, who were just beginning with heart transplant, I remember sitting down, uh, literally the back of an envelope, and figuring out how many people each of us were seeing. And we thought, you know, we're never going to have enough hearts for all these people. And really, it was a, it was a group of us when we were talking about the transplant, and it realized we're going to have to take care of a lot of heart failure. But it was very lonely for quite a while. And the Heart Failure Society really offered us a home as it came together. Um, and I think it was, you know, Jay and Gary's um, vision and Indra, which I know, a part of that as well. So it really gave us a home at a time when we didn't have one. That's wonderful. Well, I remember uh, a number of incidents that uh, Len you'd be interested in. I remember being called to the office of uh, Jay Corn. We used to go there almost every other day. I didn't work at the university, I worked at the VA. And he called and said, you know, we've been thinking of uh, creating a society and would you like to participate? And I said, that's absolutely fantastic. And in the room was Jay, Gary Francis, and I can't recall two other people. I think it was Spencer Kubo mm -hmm. and, and who else I can't remember. So we sat down there and like yourself, we had all this discussion, why do we need it? One of the things uh, that came up, hey, listen, you've been sending papers all over. People don't understand those publications. <laughs> they don't understand what uh, uh, this condition is, and you get them rejected. Uh, the story really goes back all the way when Jay tried to publish his very first paper on vasodilators after a myocardial infarction. And it came back rejected, and I wish I remembered that quote that came from New England Journal. And so he quoted that and said, hey, listen, this is what happened to me. They didn't understand. 
and then became the standard therapy of vasodilation, right? And they said, you are killing people with doing this. That was one of the statements. <laughs> or this is so ingenious that no one understands what you're doing. So that was one of the things that led him to say, listen, we got to have a journal where we can get people who understand the phenomenon of heart failure. So, so you're absolutely right. I have to say, though, Inder, um, I actually remember uh, one of the first papers that, that really got my interest. It was in the New England Journal, actually, and it was Jay Cohn and Gary uh, who would use nitroprusside in a patient after myocardial infarction. Yes. When they And um, then they couldn't get him off the nitroprusside, so yes. they actually put him on nitrates. And a really interesting part of that now, for those of us who struggle with right. um, IRBs, is that then just to make sure it was the nitrates that were working, they gave him a placebo for a while, and he got short of breath again. Um, but you know, to me, that was such a pivotal paper for the physiology, but also um, telling us that you can learn so much from one patient. And that is still true, despite the thousands of people in trials. If you really, really study one patient and figure out what's going on, it can often open up a whole new way of thinking about what's happening. You know, as, as Lifetime Achievement Award winners, I'm sure both of you have had lots of um, people that have helped you along the way and really mentors that have potentially structured your journey, uh, or, or perhaps not. Uh, maybe if you could take us back a little bit when you were very early on in your career, who were the people, Dr. Anand, that sort of guided you a little bit and set you on your path to where you are now? That's a very interesting question. I think everyone in his lifetime thinks about uh, my life, how does it come to this? You know, here's a guy, young guy in a small town, Amritsar, that uh, was born in Lahore, in Pakistan, uh, partitioned, had to be, you know, partitioned and come to India. And, and from there now, uh, sitting, talking to you. That's it. And so life is really, if you look at it, long, long story, which has so many incidents, some of them fairly significant, that change your life. And so if I look back, uh, I think of many of them, first in the school, in my medical school, in, at university, at Oxford, and then when I went to London to be trained uh, with Peter Harris. Uh, all of them are so many stories that one can go on and on and on. But I tell you, the one that really influenced me, I must have been about 10 or 11 years old. And I came back from school and came straight home, opened my bedroom, ran to the bathroom, wanted to change from school uniform to what I would wear and play cricket. And what do I see? my bathtub disappeared. So I came crying to my mom and said, Mommy, what has happened? Someone has taken my, stolen my bathtub. And she turned around and said, no, 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 your dad took it. And I was very extremely annoyed with him. But every evening he would come back, tell us stories about what he had done. He was a quite a well-known surgeon, cardiac surgeon and had met everyone in, in the country, become friends with them. And he'd taken the tub to cool a patient with ice. 
This is 1954 or five. And uh, he said, look, I had learned from my friend in this country, Frank Gabodi in uh, San Francisco, a pediatric surgeon was a good friend of his, that you can cool people and then their circulation becomes so slow that they can open the heart and do a procedure. Mm. So that's what I did. And we sat, both of our brothers, looking at him and saying, oh my God, I'm no longer annoyed with you. <laughs> so what happened? And he told us how we opened the heart and closed the secundum ASD and put him back and the patient is alive. So surgery at that time was not cardiac surgeons over there. And, you know, there were all kinds of surgeons wanting to do neurosurgery and general surgery. And that was a very first incident that I think was significant for me to say, look, I'm going to be uh, either a surgeon or go into that kind of field. And of course, you should tell us about your system because thereafter there are so many incidents that really changed my life. But that was the most impression I had, the earliest ones. How about yourself? Well, because the hardware field was so young, I would say that um, so many things that shaped me were actually from other people in the same at the same level. Those of us uh, you know, would get together and talk about things and I remember several times something that I just assumed was true and was working with, someone else would say, well, that's on, that's unusual. And so we really helped each other find out what things we had assumed that we had perhaps no data for. And so we kind of stimulated himself, well, let's look and see if that's true. Um, I remember the, uh, you know, the, the, the profiles of the uh, warm and dry and cold and wet and we had used those for years at UCLA. It just was an easy way to think about people. And I remember um, saying it to um, Barry Massey. And I was just drawing this because we were talking about designing a trial. And I was saying, well, which box do we want? He said, what boxes? <laughs> and we looked at that and he said, well, that's kind of an interesting way of thinking about it. And so at that point, we began looking into it and trying to actually document it. But as I say, it wasn't. And then another thing I remember is um, I was giving Kenneth Dickstein uh, who was at that point quite well known to our exercise group. And they said, would you just mind giving this, this professor a ride to the airport? I didn't know him at all. And he asked us about how we did things in our CCU. And I was talking about how we did tailored therapy with a catheter to vasodilate and use nitroprusside and aim for And he said, really? And I said, well, doesn't everybody do that? <laughs> and he said, no. Um, and it was sort of recognizing that you end up doing things without really testing yourself is, is this the right thing to do? And so that's how we launched, um, for example, there into trying to demonstrate the value of hemodynamic guided therapy. Uh, Those, so that, that protocol is still in the UCLA uh, fellows work. I'm just saying it's, all, it's all still there. <laughs> well, that's nice to know. It's, but um, so, so much of my way along has just been serendipity. Um, things happened at a certain time, a certain question just triggered things that one wouldn't have anticipated. So I've very much uh, been guided by serendipity. So one of my favorite parts about HFSA is sort of exactly what we're doing now, sort of getting to hear and share these stories of heart failure, personal experiences with mentorship and, and uh, how the field has evolved over time. And I think, you know, we've just heard these incredible stories about 
seminal work in vasodilators and heart failure and the famous Lynn Warner Stevenson hemodynamic profiles of congestion. And fast forwarding to sort of yesterday's plenary session, you know, we're now hearing about the incorporation of big data and uh, social disparities in health and inequity and how that is really intersecting with heart failure now. So we wanted to ask you sort of in your vision um, of how heart failure has evolved and where do you feel like sort of now as we stand today, um, what gets you most excited for the next generation of heart failure clinicians to be tackling? Well, for me, because I initially got into this because I was asked to help start a transplant program. And so that's how I ended up getting into heart failure, which is obviously the gate into transplant. Um, so I find it very interesting that it was actually heart transplant, I think, both at University of Minnesota and at UCLA where I was, um, that actually is what began to draw so many people. We had no idea how many people were out there with heart failure until we had something that they came to be referred for. And then we re began to realize how, how very, very large that population is. Um, and I think our initial work focused very much on that part of heart failure, the decompensated end stage. But part of what's so exciting to me now is we've moved more and more proximal in the course of disease to now look at how can we prevent heart failure? And even if we don't prevent it, how can we pick it up early so that we can perhaps save more hearts and we don't have to transmit so many? So I think I've seen heart failure move way back from the cardiogenic shock, hemodynamic challenges, all the way back to how can we predict that? How can we prevent that? How can we track it much earlier in the course? Of, and I think that's a really exciting part, which now becomes relevant to the entire population. So many of whom are at risk, uh, but, you know, by virtue even of just hypertension. So I, let me tell you another story. And this goes back when I was the treasurer of uh, HFSA. And at that time, we had three drugs. And all of them, except for carbidolol, have become generic. So as a treasurer, one of your duties is to get some money. <laughs> and the only money that you get here in this uh, HFSA, the large chunk was satellite symposia. Because that is where uh, the investors want to tell people that, ah, you've got a new product. There was no product. For the two years that I was a treasurer, there were no more than two satellite symposia. Mm. We were broke. We were almost to the stage of saying, do we close the shop? Because for 10 years, there was no drug. And now look where we are. We do not know exactly what to choose at what time. So you asked, where do we go? Uh, uh, then suggest, hey, we need to do something about stage B and stage A, uh, heart failure. But I think we still need to do something about how do we individualize patient care, which patients reach what drug at what level. We still are not clear about that, and that's where we need to go. Going from beta blocker, ACE inhibitors, not even aldosterone inhibitors. They hadn't come into vogue at that time. Still are a big question mark. But from there to where we are today, I think it's a, a large, large leap. And, you know, we are so lucky to be living in that era. Well, I agree with that huge change and with all the potential. But 
I also agree that we face a really serious challenge right now. Mm -hmm. And this is what I would like to see more research being done. We have too many therapies for the average clinician who is not an expert. It's going to be what they hear the most about. What have they seen advertised? How are they going to decide? And, you know, as was mentioned yesterday, there are 1,218 members of the society and 6 million people with heart failure. Mm. We're never going to handle it all. So, But it is up to us, I think, to lead and to give guidance in how to select. But, but the other thing I think that goes so much to your point about how many drug therapies we have is that each, um, each therapy, their industry wants it to be for everybody, obviously. It's, it's a business. But we can no longer say every new therapy has to be given to every patient. Mm -hmm. and, and somehow we have to focus on figuring out which patient really needs this one. And then if they can tolerate it, you add that one. As opposed to everyone's going to have five, six, seven, and three devices. Um, we've got to take responsibility um, to be a little bit firm to industry and say your trials have to not only tell us what works in your population that you tested, but help us decide which patients benefit the most. Because I feel right now that we're, that we're not quite meeting our responsibility in how to individualize from all the therapies we have. I, I completely agree. I feel like we've seen so many either home run or grand slam types of studies in the last few years with drugs and with devices. And then you look at the you know, the New England Journal paper and the clinical trial data. Then you look at these patients in front of you and trying to actually connect all of the options that we have to the person in front of you from a cost, access, all these other issues, disparities, to actually help translate that amazing science to help all the patients. There's there's a bit of a disconnect there. So. There's a dark yeah. chasm there at this point of how to get from this trial to my patients. And we need help in bridging that. I agree. I agree. Um, I think one thing that people always like to hear about uh, is any advice you would give yourself, a junior version of you or junior folks that are listening, frankly, that are starting their careers, things that either either advice that guided you in a certain direction or frankly, bad advice too. someone told me to do this and that was terrible advice. And I just avoided that. Do you have any um, pearls on that side? Um. Well, one of the things I would have done, um, I would have learned Spanish, not only because it would help me communicate with patients, but because I think it's really important to be able to think in another culture, in, in another vocabulary. Um, I, I was learning to do biopsies as a second year fellow um, in our transfer program, and I was the only person doing the biopsies. So I actually didn't have a chance to learn much echo, and I never caught up. I really, really needed to learn echo better. Um, I think the piece of advice that I give most often now to fellows when I visit and talk to fellows at other institutions is I would work just as hard. I would work really hard because it's exciting. You learn things. It's rewarding. You, you contribute. Um, but I would really try not to worry so hard because I couldn't guess what was coming in the future. Um, I, I would say um, from, in terms of writing, I tell everyone, you must write with an outline because it organizes your thoughts so people can understand you, but you can't live by an outline. 
<laughs> you're wasting your time if you try to outline your life, your, your life and your journey. I, I agree with you, Lynn, uh, but you know, in life, even it today, all over the world, it's so difficult to get into uh, heart failure now. It wasn't. It was one of the easiest professional uh, sub-speciality to do that, becoming very difficult. But if you had the luxury, I would say, choose your mentor very carefully. If you can. Now, that's not easy. Uh, you don't even have the choice of getting into a speciality program and then to say, listen, I want to only choose to go to Brigham or go to Nashville or go to UCSD and work with that person is just not feasible. So you have, you, you deal with the heart, uh, the cards that are dealt with you. Uh, but I agree, uh, once you are there, I think there is no recipe other than sheer hard work and dedication. All of us know that that's what pays off in the end. And, you know, if you are very careful in following the literature and you have a good mentor and go to him or her and say, listen, I have read this. Can I do this? Something like this. You know, I tell you that is what helped me. But that was a different world. You know, there were so many options available at that time, not today. So, that's a very tough uh, question to answer. And there are a couple of things I worry about in our current training. One of them is that I don't think people start out as often as you and I did, Inder, with something that is within our own um, control. And so many people start out now looking at large databases of information they did not design, they did not originally interpret, and they're going on what I call the Jeopardy game of, here's the answer, what's a question? And I think it's really important, and, and I, I'm going to try to work on how we could do this better, um, that they take a small question that you could answer maybe in 20 patients. It wouldn't be a New England Journal article. It might not be a Journal of Heart Care article, but it could be a letter. It could be a research letter where you ask a question prospectively that you think matters and just struggle with how to get the information and how to try to answer it. Um, because that process, I think, is often lost um, in the first few years of analyzing someone else's data. The other thing I think that, and, and this gets to this problem of, of our training and not being able to do training programs, um, we do maybe now 3,400, 3,500 transplants a year, maybe 4,000 bads a year, but we have 6 million people with heart failure. And yet so much of our training is focusing on taking care of the transplants and the bads, and there's so much more to learn. And I wanna make sure that, our, that the curriculum that is endorsed by our fellows um, by, is, is not too focused on transplant and bad. That's right. One of the things that's really important about the Heart Beard Society is to emphasize all the different exciting areas that are not just transplanted and bad. Because we're focusing our training a little too much on that right now in terms of what the curriculum looks like and you have to do this many biopsies and you do this many donor runs. 
there's so much else out there, both to, to learn to practice, but also to ask questions about. Yeah, I agree. The, um, those two areas have become almost more in vogue, a little more sexy, and so a lot of attention gets paid to those, but they're kind of really the tip of the iceberg of all these patients that we take mm-hmm. care of, right? So remember, uh, what has happened these days is that a large publications, large number of publications are coming from database analyses. And Kevin, you know that, you've uh, dealt with databases, and you can only do so much with a database because these days, the trials are designed to get outcomes. And they are very large trials of necessity because the mortality, morbidity has gone down so much that you can't measure everything and everyone. I remember being trained at a time when, for example, uh, Jay would not do a trial if it was mechanistically not designed. So the we have trials, everyone got every conceivable measure with no question asked. So if you don't have databases, then you can't get a bright guy or the bright guy comes to you like Kevin and says, look, I'm interested in something new. And I'll say, okay, I have this database. Just go and look at it and search and you know do all sorts of things on it and come out with a solution. And we did that all the time. Our, our young fellows just did that. Uh, very difficult today to do that. So ideas have to come really from quite original ideas without the, the, the help of some of these things that we've just discussed. Well, one of the other things that, that worries me as well, um, I think moving farther now down to what to me is a nightmare, which is administrative and claims databases. And going back and trying to look for a correlation, say, between chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and heart failure. It's like, but chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, it's binary. It's checked off or it's not. And you cannot really do mechanistic, test mechanistic hypotheses with data that was not collected to allow that. It was collected for billing. So it's not going to have the granularity that you need. And so I really worry about some of the conclusions that are drawn from data that is not collected to answer those questions. Um, There has to be, with your mechanistic trials, you knew from the beginning you were going to want to know what was in the blood. You were going to want to know what the echoes showed, what the exercise test showed. But that's not why they're doing things for billing. So, Mm -hmm. so, So you have a very flawed database from which to try to answer things. Um, Even today, you know, you're doing HAPF trials, and how can you not have everyone's uh, echoes measured in core labs? And, of course, that becomes very expensive. If you start doing those things, you'll never get a trial done to get an endpoint. So you do sub-studies, and they may not be sufficient to do those and so on. So, you know, great difficulty these days. And it's... Because of our success, we've done so wonderfully well in reducing morbidity, mortality. You find it very difficult to get another drug to do that. I am so surprised that SGLT2 are working on top of everything we have. (laughs) We are not advertising it over here, but, you know, that's the fact of life. Well, but what I would point out, um, as was pointed out um, in other places, that that was serendipity. I think it's 
so important for us to be humble and realize that some of the greatest discoveries are going to be not where we looked. So, which means we have to be so vigilant all the time for new signals um, and not be too sure that we know what the answers are. We've touched on a, a couple of these things, I think, already, but just to rip off this a little bit. For today's heart failure clinician, in your estimation, what are the most important skills and qualities that that person should have? <laughs> I'm going to let you, you start. Go, no, no, you go ahead. And <laughs> <do that. laughs> um, well, first of all, they have to be really good clinicians. They have to be able to take a history which is really kind of like a detective work, and I really like the old-time detective stories. You have to ask a question, but not just listen to the answer, watch their eyes, watch the person next to them. Is there something else in that story that they're not telling you? So, so the first, you know, it's, it's a lot of detective work just to figure out what their story is. What are they bringing to you? That's the beginning. And then you have to put that together with what you can find on your physical examination on very basic things, the EKG, the blood pressure, et cetera and then decide how to use your other tests and use them very well. But I think you have to, first of all, want to connect with the patient. You have to want to see the whole picture what, and, and recognize that it's not all gonna match up. So these things fit together, this doesn't. Am I wrong here or is this not wrong? So, so it's a tremendously complex intellectual and, and human endeavor to take care of the patient. And that's just the first time. When they come back the second time, I have to be humble enough to realize I might have been wrong this time. In fact, that may not be what's going on at all. So I have to be ready to change course. And this isn't something that's taught really much. Medical school focuses on the differential diagnosis. It's not on, well, what was the diagnosis the next time, the next time. And then you have to be able to work with them to figure out what's important to them. So you can play to that and get them on the therapies that will help them with that. It's... Um, that's kind of the core of it, and all the other things were added on. These are the therapies that you could use that might work. These are the side effects. This person is still feeling dizzy when they stand up. That's hurting their quality of life. How am I going to adjust things to fix that? Um, and then I think you have to be comfortable with uncertainty, both in your own mind and help a patient deal with uncertainty, because we don't offer 100% guarantees for anything. And we have to help them understand what we can offer and what we can't. Um, and I really haven't gotten into the specifics of the therapies of the diagnostic test at all. And frankly, I, I wish I were better versed in some of the details because I think there are tremendous things to be discovered from tissue characterization and MRI and echo. Um, and you know, I think trying to learn how to use some of the newer biomarkers, there's whole layers of things, but you have to really care about it. And if not, you should probably be doing something like pathology or radiology. Or, uh, <laughs> I'm glad you talked about uh, physical science because you made your life on that. You know, it was whether the patient is hot or cold, whether it's dry or wet, treatment was accordingly. Today, you don't have physicians who know what bedside diagnosis is. I remember when I joined the Heart Hospital, National Heart Hospital, it was really the tradition of the great uh, um, physician who was uh, responsible for it over there, 
Paul, uh, what is his last name? It'll come to me in a minute. He would not let his residents, first year resident, do anything but sit at the bedside and make the diagnosis from there. Learn what JVD was. How was that related to the pulse? Did he have atrial fibrillation? Could he look at A waves in the neck and relate them to the J waves? Could he actually write that on a piece of card and present it to him the next day when he came for uh, the board rounds? If he did not, he stayed there. He did not go to the clinic. He was not allowed to do anything else. <laughs> and then how does that relate to the heart sound and so on? Now, that might be going overstretching the thing today. But what I'm trying to say that your life, actually experiences of that part is exactly because of that. Had you not done that, you wouldn't have got that algorithm that you developed. Right? So to, today, I think the algorithm we are talking about has to be, can I on the bedside or do I need other sophisticated measurements, be it biomarkers or uh, chemical markers that will tell us this drug ought to be number one, that ought to be followed by that. Is it all on someone's blood pressure, someone's pulse rate and so on. So. I think we've got to change our thinking now from bedside alone to the sophisticated thing that we have at the moment. Mm -hmm. Does that answer your question, my dear? <laughs> it definitely did. <laughs> how, uh, how has it been? How's the meeting been for both of you just coming back in person again, um, you know, as we kind of roll through COVID-19 and the pandemic still? Restorative. Yeah. Um, I feel we, we've really kind of become desiccated in a way, sitting at our um, computer screens and seeing each other on, on camera. And there's just such, such a, <clears throat> of a vibrancy of seeing each other in person and reacting personally and, and reacting in a group. Zoom is very hard because you see these faces separately as opposed to, I can see both of you together. And you know, that enhances my experience of you, but also your experiences of each other. It's, you know, as you had pointed out before we started, we're social beings and, and we need this contact to, to inspire us, to challenge us. So it's wonderful to, to be back together. And um, I was looking forward to it, but I, I really didn't imagine how much I would find it uh, uh, therapeutic. Yeah, and I entirely agree, Lynn. Um, you remember in the old days, uh, this was even a smaller society. Even now, you know, Total membership is about 2,000, 2,500. And uh, that's a very small society by this, you know, today's standards at AHA, ACC, ESC, and so on. Uh, but it was such a camaraderie feeling to have all these people who are deeply involved in heart failure. They could talk to each other. We always had someone, or we certainly had our spouses, if not children, at the meetings, if you remember. <laughs> and we knew each other so well. Uh, and that, I think, helped in, in, in making this society a vibrant one. And then, of course, you can't expect that to happen when the society becomes very big, very big. But at least you meet 
physically with each other. We know who Kevin is, you know, uh, put the name to the face, and then I can be much more, uh, 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 you know, the relationship between you and me improves as we go along. I can write to you and say, listen, we remember, we chatted about that thing. What do you think? Can you lend me some slides so I can use in my next book? <laughs> well, one of the other things I had forgotten that is so valuable about meeting in person is the triangle. How often are you talking to someone that you know well, someone else comes up whom they know, and then they introduce them to you, and, and then you find the three of you have some commonalities you're unaware of. And, and, and so the way that that expands um, your, your crystal structure, I often like to think of things as crystals where you, know, you have things that, put in, that go into a place, um, sort of the crystal of learning, where you find a place for this and then it links to that. And if things don't link, you lose them. So it's, it's being able to link things in multiple dimensions that helps you hold on to them and it's the crystal grow. Well said. Well, any last questions? Um, thank you both for your time. This has uh, been wonderful. This has been great. Again, congratulations to both the Lifetime Achievement Awards. Obviously, thank you so much. Here. Thank you for having us and Lynn. It's and been thank so you nice. For, I, I haven't and, seen you in a while. It's no, been so nice we haven't to met be, for such a long time. It's been so Hopefully, nice this to becomes have. regular now. The COVID is not going to restrict us from meeting every year. Okay. Wonderful to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Both. Thank you so much. For more information on advances and late-breaking news in the field of heart failure care, make sure to subscribe to the podcast or visit hfsa.org slash heartfailurebeat to learn all about the podcast created by the Heart Failure Society of America. To all of our listeners, thanks for joining and have a great day.